the towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic and the aftermath of the pandemic, we are recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Well, today we're going to focus on Maine's media landscape and what it means for democracy and community discourse. Um, the, the landscape has changed over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and especially uh, more recently. So we're glad to have some guests here who can help us with that topic. Kate Koff is a reporter from the Maine Monitor. Faith Ambrose is the managing editor of the Mount Desert Islander. Michael Sokolow is a media historian and associate professor of communication and journalism at the University of Maine. And joining us as well, Amy Brown, my colleague, who is the news manager, news and public affairs manager at WERU Community Radio. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being with us. Well, let's um, ask each of you to provide a little bit of background on yourselves, um, how you got into the work of journalism and um, what you're doing um, today. Uh, Faith, could we start with you? Um, tell us a little bit about your journalistic history and, and how you got involved. Sure. I am the currently the managing editor of the Mount Desert Islander, which is a community weekly located in Bar Harbor. I have a master's degree in communication with a focus on media education from the University of Maine. And I'm a current member of the Maine Press Association's Board of Directors. So I've been in Maine journalism for over 20 years now. Um, and before joining the team with the Islander, um, I worked for Nat Barrows and the Penobscot Bay Press Papers for about 17 years. Mm. And um, Kate, I first connected with you um, because you and, and Faith did a program at the Jessup Memorial Library about this very topic. Kate, give us a little bit of background on yourself. Sure. Um, well, as, as Ron mentioned, I am a reporter for the Maine Monitor. I cover energy and the environment. I'm also a Report for America Corps member. Um, so it's a national program that looks to place reporters in underserved newsrooms. Um, before I came to the Monitor, I actually worked for the Ellsworth American for uh, about three and a half years. Um, and before that, um, I got a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Um, and I'm an eighth generation Mainer, so I have been here most of my life. <laughs> and Great. I love this. It's a wonderful place to report and to live. Great. Michael Sokolow, um, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, okay, great. Th thanks for having me. I'm a former uh, broadcast journalist. I worked at CNN in Los Angeles in the early 1990s, and I've worked at the Olympics as a as a information manager and producer. And um, I have a PhD in history, actually, from Georgetown, and I'm an associate produce uh, associate pr professor at the University of Maine in communication and journalism. But I still do some journalism. I still write for publications like Slate and Politico, and places like that. Great. Amy, Amy Brown, how did you get started in all of this work, um, especially there at WERU? Well, I did not major in journalism, but I did take <laughs> some journalism classes in college. And I, I ended up with undergrad just uh, at the end saying, all right, add up my credits. What did I major in? And it was anthropology and sociology. So um, 
But that I continued on and got my master's in clinical social work and worked in the mental health field for a lot of years and started volunteering at WERU after attending an orientation with someone else. I'd been doing some writing for uh, environmental publications, but nothing serious and nothing professional. And when a friend and I were at that orientation and heard the WERU was training people to do news and public affairs programming, and this was at a time before everyone had it, before smartphones even existed, not everyone had them. There were indie media sites and citizen journalism was just kind of starting to take off. So for the first five or so years, I was at the station starting back in late 2000. I was a volunteer and did a weekly program. And in 2006, I was hired on as the news and public affairs manager. I still produce programs, but I also kind of coordinate the other volunteer producers. So I kind of feel like I'm the one of these is not like the others in this picture <laughs> because our, our model is so completely different from everyone else's. But uh, Kate and Faith, what led to your collaboration to present programs on main media landscape? Uh, Faith, you want to start? Well, it was all Kate's idea. Oh. So, um, she she um, had an idea to do a series of talks on the media and reached out and asked if I would be willing to partner with her. Um, and I jumped at the opportunity. I'm always looking for any opportunity to speak with the community about the media. Um, anything I can do to teach people about the media is, um, is great. So I was a willing participant. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I... I, th I had seen kind of a lack of programming around the topic, and um, it's also something that Report for America really tries to um, disseminate. You know, we we really try to talk to people about media literacy, and I knew, you know, I knew Faith from my my work at the Ellsworth American, and um, I she I was so grateful that she decided to do it with me because she has all the knowledge, and I just <laughs> I, I had an idea, but very little, you know, real knowledge around the topic. So um, yeah, we, we you know we. We actually initially, the idea was to hopefully speak to younger audiences, and I think that's still something we'd really like to do because there is a lack of programming around this in schools, um, and we can talk a little bit more about that later, but um, it's, that's a really important aspect of this and, and something I think we'd like to um, explore a little further. Well, Kate, staying with you with the main monitor, not everyone knows what the main monitor is and, and what it does. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So we are a uh, statewide outlet. Um, so, you know, our, our news is, is local to Maine. We cover only Maine. Um, we're a pretty small, uh, we're a pretty small outfit. We have three full-time staff reporters and we are a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Um, so we do not have a paywall. We don't have subscribers. Um, we rely entirely on donors and grant money to do our work. So we have limited resources, like most news organizations in Maine. And the way that we do our work is we each have a beat. So like I said, I, I cover energy and the environment. Um, and, you know, we're following the news in our beat and, uh, and reporting on that throughout the state. So my, my work takes me all over Maine, uh, which is really fun. And we do, you know, we, we do some longer form reporting. Um, and one of our, you know, one of kind of the hallmarks of our work is that we actually distribute our content to any media organization in Maine who wants to use it for free. So um, they are allowed to reprint it or republish it, whatever, you know, as long as they credit us. Um, because really one of our goals is that the information get out there. So um, that's, that's how we like to do it. 
Kate, what, what, what's the favorite story in the last six months that you worked on? What, what really, really um, turned you on as a, as a reporter? Oh, well, one of the things I love about my job is that I get to write about different things every, every couple of weeks. But um, I reported on uh, the discovery of a extremely rich lithium resource in Western Maine. Um, so that was an incredibly fun story to report. I just stumbled upon it reading, you know, I was reporting something else and was talking to somebody and they said, hey, did you know that we, we actually have some lithium in Western Maine? And they just found it and it's one of the world's richest lithium resources. And so I called the people who own the land and, and said, hey, what, you know, tell me about this. And um, that got quite a bit of coverage, which was, which was fun to see it disseminated. But it was also just really fascinating to report because I know, you know, I had never spoken to a geologist before and I got to talk to yeah, probably 10 of them for that piece. So that was really a blast. Great. Well, turning from the kind of the nonprofit um, angle in Maine's media landscape, let's go to Faith and and ask her to tell us a little bit more about the the Islander. The Islander is a relatively new publication, not compared to the Ellsworth American that goes back a long time. Um, but tell us a little bit about the Islander. I know um, that one of the stories that that you're you're covering now is the foolish Ford Bronco that got stuck stuck in the mud on the on the sandbar. So you also cover other kinds of things. So let us know about that. Yes, we did cover the Ford Bronco, and um, it elevated us to social media stardom. <laughs> we um, had more shares and likes of those sorts of stories than some of the more serious news we do sometimes. I'm not sure what that says about society in general, but those sorts of things um, draw people to them for sure. So the Islander is um, celebrating its 20th year this year. Um, we are in the midst of it. COVID's kind of dampened our celebrations, um, but we are celebrating our 20th year here. We are the sister paper to the Ellsworth American, which goes back to, you know, 18, the 1850s. So we have um, we have a dedicated group of news reporters who work primarily in geographic beats, although some of them do, like our, our reporter Dick Broom covers. Uh, Katie National Park, things like that. But most of the time, the uh, coverage areas of Mount Desert Island are broken up into geography. Someone covers Bar Harbor, Southwest Harbor and Tremont, Mount Desert. You know, as a paper of record, we tend to focus on local government, land use and school issues, which are the heart of any community. Then we look to tell stories about the people, the places, the businesses um, in our community. We look for any, um, you know, anything that's relevant that will inform people as to how their, you know, community around them is is functioning. And uh, Amy Brown, WERU is different in some ways. It's it's all volunteer. But uh, tell us how you cover news um, and public affairs at WERU. Right, right. Primarily now we do public affairs. I mean, you have to really make that distinction. I wish we had the resources to do more news and i'm always looking at that but news that we do cover it would be things like road closure you know things that people needed to know immediately where the accident on route three is on that friday afternoon in the summer you know because there's one that shuts down route three just about every friday afternoon letting people know the workarounds bad storms things like that but otherwise i think the public affairs programs that we have take topics that are in the news, like PFAS, for example, and do in-depth uh, programs about them, usually an hour-long program. A few of them are half-hour programs. But one of the major differences 
is in how the topics are assigned. The, when people come to the station saying they want to learn how to do news and public affairs, and some of them already know, some of them already have a background in that, but they want to propose a program at the station, they go through a process where it's evaluated to determine whether the proposal that they're making fits within our uh, mission and our operating principles and also doesn't duplicate something that we already have on the air because we have limited time. And then we train the person if it's accepted or, you know, modify it if it needs to be modified and then train them to record in whatever format they're going to do, whether it be before the pandemic, a live call-in show, or if it's going to be something that that needs more production work. But the subject matter is part of their proposal. And so we have like you, Ron, uh, Ron has been doing talk of the towns and public affairs for longer than anyone else at the station. Uh, And his program kind of covers a wider variety of things. Excuse me. Then a lot of the newer shows like Mofka's uh, Common Ground Radio, obviously, they're covering organic farming. Uh, or the League of Women Voters has a program as well, and it's kind of clear, you know, they cover topics that they are uh, working on and things that are related to those. So when we get requests for coverage from the public, we get press releases, those kinds of things. My job is uh, sort of to be a clearinghouse I'm still hosting programs myself. So if there's something that falls in the rubric of what I'm covering, I will hang on to them. But if they are topics that others might be interested in, I'll distribute them to the volunteer producers because I'm the only full-time person who works in the department. And then they determine whether it's something that they want for their program or not. They have a lot of freedom in determining what their topics are going to be and booking their own guests. And it's an organic process that, if you thought about it and planned it that way, you probably would think it's never going to work, but it actually does because the hosts are members of the community and they have a feel for what's important within the area that they are especially interested in. And they know people within that area. So, so it works. It Great. works somehow. Great. Yeah. Well, I just want to remind listeners they're tuned to talk the towns here on WERU. And we're talking about Maine's media landscape and what it means for democracy and and community discourse. In the studio with us, you've just heard from Amy Brown. This is the Zoom studio, not the the real studio. Amy Brown from WERU. Um, Also, Kate Koff is a reporter with the Maine Monitor. Faith D'Ambrose is the managing editor of the Mount Desert Islander. And Michael Sokolow is a media historian and his associate professor of communication and journalism at the University of Maine. Michael, um, turning to you, uh, just remind us a little bit with your historian's hat on um, the role of, of the media, um, of journalism in, in a democracy. And it goes back to our very beginnings as a, as a nation. Right. Um, You know, sometimes I tell the students, you know, why is the only there's only two endeavors that are constitutionally protected from legislation. One is being a religious leader. Right. There's no infringement. You can lead a religion if you'd like. And the other is to be a journalist. And so why are these are the only two endeavors of anything you could do? If you're going to be a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer, a farmer, the, the Constitution says your legislatures can make laws about what you do. But. These are the two places that are so essential to democracy and democratic deliberation that the founders protected them in that way. And um, and and so I think that's a really key thing to keep in mind with all the media criticism we hear and all the all the issues. 
Well, um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about some of the, if, if there are, that you observe kind of stages in the development of, of media um, in the United States. Um, we, we, we see what we're seeing right now, but you as a historian kind of see where we've come from. Well, sure. I mean, one thing that always that that makes me laugh is when we hear these complaints about fake news and the idea of fake news. But, you know, this is the country that produced P.T. Barnum. This is the country that had produced William Randolph Hearst. Uh, fake news isn't new. The idea of, you know, to sell newspapers, the New York Sun in the 1830s had something called the Great Moon Hoax. You know, there's the sinking of the Maine and the 1898 war. So a lot of what we're seeing in today's world has antecedents that we uh, don't think about as much as we probably should. I, I would make that argument as a media historian. The other thing I'd like to say is when we talk about media in Maine and the media and the democratic discourse in Maine, we have to think about the wide range of actual mediums that produce it. So, um, you know, if we say there's not enough diversity or there's plenty of diversity in Maine, we have to consider radio. We have to consider um, local television. We have to consider these web only or web first publications that exist now. Uh, and I think that's an important aspect of the discussion. How about um, kind of the, uh, the more recent t- past that we're, we're all living through? Um, and, and I think about the elimination of the fairness doc- doctrine as a kind of a pivotal point in how we got to, to where we are. Could you give us a little mini history lesson there? Well, I, I've actually written on this, and, and I just want to point out real quick that the fairness doctrine isn't what most people think. So, for instance, there were plenty of right-wing loonies on the air in the 1960s. There were Bob Grant on WABC in New York who, who would get angry at communists. There was Joe Pine who had 10 million listeners in, in California. The fairness doctrine, a lot of people look back on it as kind of a halcyon kind of a panacea. But for instance, Southern television stations had to put on pro-segregationist racists that the operators of the stations didn't want to put on the air because of the equal time rule. And if we reimpose the fairness doctrine, the exact same thing would happen today. You know, for every publication that would want to do something progressive or or think about social justice, there would be a politician who would have a lever to pull to get use those airways I mean, all in the family, I was just a, a student of mine, um, a, a PhD did something and there's a whole all in the family, Archie Bunker goes on the air and delivers a pro-gun editorial on a New York television station back in the era of the Fairness Doctrine. So the history of it has been forgotten. People think, oh, we could balance it out and get this reasonable discourse back. But no, it, you know, history shows that that it's one version of something. And by the way, there's two things for the Fairness Doctrine. There's something called the Fairness Doctrine, and then there's something called the Equal Time Rule. They caused so many like small issues. I'll give you just one example. Section 315 of the 1934 Communications Act says no broadcast licensee can hold a political debate without every announced candidate being involved. So we couldn't have presidential debates until 1960 when Congress suspended Rule 315. But Rule 315 still exists. It sounds strange, but it's what kept Howard Stern running for governor of New York and, and all kinds of things. So it's 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 that's a long-winded version of it. it's a very complicated question. Mm, sure. And 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 do you see anything again in the in the last twenty years that um, shifted or changed things, um, either for the better or for the worse? The number one thing I've seen in Maine is a fascinating canary in the coal mine. Are these fake news sites, these fake journalism sites, and I think Faith can talk about them pretty well. Uh, like the main examiner and the main beacon. I'm not gonna, they're not fake, let me let me be clear, but they're sponsored by political organizations and they're meant to appear as journalism. 
So the progressive one is, I, I think, um, and I'm looking at Kate and Faith. Is it the main beacon that's run by the Democratic Party and the unions? And then the main examiner was the one run by the Republicans, Jason Savage. Main beacons run by Maine People's Alliance. Okay. Thank you, Amy. Yes. So, so, um, but the point is, these are these are websites that are meant to appear as journalistic. They 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 look just like newspapers, but they are um, they are based in a political. They are based and funded by political organizations, and that and it's interesting because the main examiner um, played a role in the election of the mayor of Lewiston about five or ten years ago, Ben Chin. And it was run by the Maine Republican Party, and it was registered to Jason Savage. And so a lot of people look at Maine and they say, wow, Maine is sort of cutting edge in this new political world where journalism and politics collide. Kate, what would you add to that? Anything in terms of your kind of understanding of Maine's landscape at this point? No, I mean, I I think that's a good roundup of our landscape. Um, And, you know, I... I would add that there are, um, you know, some larger. So I think those are local sort of Democratic and Republican groups that are running those sites. And then there are larger national organizations that are now running sites in, you know, all 50 states. Um, We have the Maine Business Daily, which is just uh, it's which is also uh, supported by right wing groups. And that is you know, there's the main business daily, there's the Ohio business daily. They're all about the same, but it's the same principle. They look just, they appear just like local news sites. And some of them do actually cover local news, but they have different backers and um, a very different ethical framework than traditional journalism. And it's really not clear to people from looking at these websites that, that they are any different. Um, you know, we can talk, I guess, a little bit more about Maine's media landscape in general, but that that is a fascinating aspect yeah. of it. I agree. One of the things that I think um, most people don't understand is the, the economics behind um, a traditional newspaper or a traditional radio station, for instance. And so um, uh, Faith, as the representative of the, of the, the economic model, uh, tell us a little bit about how the Islander functions uh, as a as a business and the the advertising um, revenue uh, versus the editorial content just give us that profile if you could sure so um average you know we're funded by advertising that hasn't uh, changed but um at our paper we start with the content the news the stories the information and we believe that that's what brings uh, people to our publication Um, It also is what attracts advertisers who are looking to get in front of those readers. So while we rely on advertising, um, we we keep it, you know, separate from our news, you know, news gathering, but also um, feel like it's a byproduct of the great work that we do, that advertisers want to advertise in our publications. They want to get in front of the readers who are um, reading them naturally. Um, you know, and that's the traditional model. You know, there have always been sort of owners who don't necessarily adhere to that. Um, but we believe that that's what, um, you know, brings people to our papers. So um, uh, the 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 size of the paper, for instance, shrinks and, and uh, um, expands yeah. depending on how much advertising and that advertising or the, the size of the paper gets what you can cover in an average week. Um, so that's an ebb and flow kind of process through the year, especially in a, a place that has so much tourism related business um, uh, as Matt Desert Island. 
Yes, absolutely. So we try to balance that out. That's what pays for all the, you know, the paper to be printed and, and that kind of stuff. We are also lucky at the Islander. Um, we have a printing press too, where we print our own papers. So those financial considerations aren't always um, as they are at other papers who don't get to control that as much. So we are very lucky to have the ability to sort of print our own papers, um, which gives us a little more um, flexibility as to the size as well, um, the color placement, things like that. Um, but yes, we rely on advertising and we change the size of the paper to reflect that. Yep. So we're working on any given week. Right now we're starting to see things ramp up a little, so the papers will probably expand you know, pretty soon. Yep. In terms of, of assigning reporters um, to cover stories, um, talk a little bit about that role and then distinguish uh, the reporting from the editorial page and the letters to the editor, the opinion pages. Give us that little, a little bit of background on that. Sure. So the reporters, like I said, they kind of cover their own beats. So they are, you know, considered to be experts in their own area. So they're always looking at agendas for different, you know, uh, municipal bodies, planning boards, things like that, deciding what is interesting and where to spend their time um, covering. They come to me mostly. We have a story meeting that starts on Thursday where the reporters kind of come in and pitch their story ideas of, you know, tell me what they're going to be covering for the week. We talk about it. Um, you know, over the week, I may get calls from people in the community um, asking about different stories or telling me about their, you know, cousin's sister's uncle who did something really amazing, um, either in Maine or beyond. And, um, you know, I'll accumulate those during the week and on Thursdays, we'll talk about them unless it's breaking news, of course, and then um, we get to them right away. But the reporters deal with their own, um, you know, stories and, you know, communicate with me and look for guidance whenever possible. But they pretty much do a pretty good job of, of um, deciding what they're going to cover. The so like, pages, so like Amy's um, position, um, she's got, in, in her case, volunteers who are coming to her with ideas. And um, yeah. once they get a regular program, they've got a kind of a, um, a, a suite of, of topics that they might cover. You're doing this on a weekly basis, kind of um, kind of gauging what's most important and, and getting those stories written. Uh, again, come back to the notion of the editorial page and the letter to the editors. Who, who writes editorials for the Islander, for instance? Um, I write editorials for the Islander for the most part. I um, work with my counterpart at the Ellsworth American, Cindy Wood, and um, we will write editorials that we may share with each other's um, paper. So an editorial I write may end up in the Ellsworth American and, and vice versa. Um, but we pretty much keep that in-house. In um, letters to the editor come in, you know, through the public. So we at the Islander have a pretty robust community conversation happening on our editorial pages. We have two every week um, where we, you know, have a number of editorials. Um, Jill Goldwaith's uh, State of Maine, which is a really popular um, uh, piece on our editorial page, as well as um, Ruth uh, Garrison's um, Nature column. <laughs> She's, it's been in the paper for the whole 20 years that we have been um, we have been uh, here. <laughs> so right. that is one of the more popular pieces um, on the editorial page, as well as our cartoonist, uh, Joe Marshall. He does a great job each week um, coming up with ways to talk about the community in cartoon form, which <laughs> seems like a pretty fun job, if you ask me. Well, Michael, turning back to you, um, you know, this is the kind of the commercial side of media, um, but we all have, so it represented a little bit by Amy, but also by uh, Maine Public Broadcasting and others. There's a, this non 
non-commercial side. Um, how does that figure in it? That's a relatively recent trend or, or is it not? It is. And I'll say this, I, I, I think Maine is, is wonderfully diverse for a state that only has 1.3 million people. If you look on the left side of the radio dial near where WERU is, there are these stations that, that um, you know, you could argue that the problem is people don't listen to them and they're siloed. But there's a conservative Catholic network here in Maine called Relevant Radio. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Or there's college stations, WMEB, WHSN from Hudson University has a wonderful station here in Bangor. And so the nonprofit radio sector, and WERU is famous around the nation for its uh, as being one of the first original grassroots ones. So, um, you know, on, on the radio dial, Maine is remarkably diverse for a, a state of its size. And like I said, it, it, with these new political websites, um, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, it'd be a fascinating question demographically why Maine is so media minded. But also the main monitor was founded as the main center for investigative reporting by um, Naomi Shallot and, and John Christie. And it got a national reputation very quickly. Something's up in Maine. People are re- very interested in journalism and media here. So is, is Maine, um, you're, you're saying Maine is a little bit different. Um, but uh, um, Kate, how would you characterize the Maine media landscape? And again, um, most people aren't aware of what they're there, it's, it's like the fish swimming in water. We're not necessarily aware of what we're swimming in. Um, how would you characterize it, Kate? I think that's a good characterization. Um, I, you know, we have seen some consolidation, I would say, you know, especially among the newspaper, the print world in Maine. Uh, it, you know, we have, uh, the Monitor actually did a project a few years ago looking at Maine's newsmakers, and these numbers may be a little bit outdated, but we found that uh, of the 63 newspapers in Maine, uh, Reed Brower owned 27 of them, and Rick Warren, who owns the Bangor Daily News, owned six. Um, so, you know, that there's some consolidation there, but it's very different from what we've seen at the national level where we, um, you know, we have newspapers in the hands of large corporations at the national level. Here, they are still in the hands of individuals. And that makes a huge difference. Um, I know when I, um, I know... At some national organizations, I think there there has been sort of a top-down approach where, you know, some of what they cover gets dictated at the top. I I have to say at the end, Faith can speak to this, but, you know, at the Ellsworth American, when the Ellsworth American was bought by Reed Brower, um, I didn't see any of that. I mean, we really retained complete independence from all of the other newspapers in Maine. And so... It was actually an advantage because, like in a lot of other places, Maine's newspapers are struggling financially, and it allowed us to be able to share stories among, you know, among other newspapers that were relevant to readers elsewhere in the state. So I, I think, you know, we've seen some consolidation, but certainly not like what we've seen at the national level, and it's manifested very differently here. Um, so I, I agree. I think, you know, we we all get in our little silos and. Um, Unfortunately, I think it I think it falls on news consumers more than ever to really break out of those and to um, challenge themselves on, you know, all, you know, their views and to read and listen and watch different things. But in terms of what we have available, I, I think we are in a better position than a lot of other states. You mentioned and, and um, again, I'll, I'll ask uh, Faith and, and Michael to comment as well. But uh, you mentioned especially wanted to um, help young people understand um, the media landscape. Um, 
they have a lot more choices in terms of what they're viewing and participating in. And that's the other thing that, that's happened, I think, in the last 20 years, that um, media is a much more participatory process than it was when I was growing up. When we did write letters to the newspaper, but we didn't do much else. <laughs> that was about it. Um, uh, so again, start with Kate um, and then maybe go to uh, Faith and Michael and Amy about um, the role of, of current media helping young people understand the media world that they're living in. I think they have a lot to teach us. Um, you know, I think the media in Maine and and all you know all over the United States has a lot of work to do in reaching their audiences where they are. So we we need to break out of our traditional formats and start to do that. Um, we we're doing an okay job, but you know, <laughs> there's there's work to be done there. And and you know, you mentioned the participatory participatory nature of media. I think. Um, you know, one of the wonderful things about the the changes that we've seen in journalism and just with the rise of the Internet um, has been to really break down some of the traditional gatekeeping that happened in media uh, that really it left a lot of voices out. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that we, we have captured all those voices. There's still a lot of work to be done in diversifying newsrooms and increasing, you know, the representation of marginalized groups. But I think the breakdown of those traditional um, gatekeeping, that traditional gatekeeping has, you know, has helped diversify our newsrooms and our coverage. And, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword because we also relied on those gatekeepers to um, help weed out misinformation and disinformation. So there's definitely a balance there and we are looking for it. But um, that I, you know, I think hopefully in the end, it will be a positive change. Um, how about you, Faith? I know that, um, again, newspapers rely on readers. Um, there are current readers and there are future readers, <laughs> the next generation. I know that you and the Ellsworth American sponsor something called Newspapers in the Classroom. Um, uh, and I use that um, at College Atlantic when I'm teaching. Um, talk a little bit about how you um, see reaching out to young people or involving young people um, with the Islander or, or uh, other media. Yeah, I think those are our future readers, hopefully, right? So, um, so yes, we have a pretty robust newspapers and education program um, that is is taking a little hit over the COVID, the last two years with with COVID, because kids haven't necessarily been in the classroom, that sort of thing. Um, but it's something we take really seriously. We want to get our you know products in front of everybody, and we believe that there's a lot of value for students to interact with the newspaper in every different way. So providing them in the classrooms gives the opportunity for teachers to, you know, for free, um, be able to teach about newspapers, to get the students um, used to reading them, giving them an opportunity to teach students about what they're seeing in the newspaper, all of that is really important. Um, you know, every bit of media, whether it's a newspaper, radio, program, magazine, nightly news, whatever, it's being produced by people who filter news and information in some way, right? So some outlets strive to get it right while others don't, you know, care too much. So getting something that, um, you know, that's where media education comes in. You know, we live in a participatory democracy and citizens need to be informed, but they also need to understand how to be savvy media consumers. 
um, which means being able to critically analyze and navigate the media messages coming at you all the time. And if we can provide an opportunity for students to start with newspapers to that end, then, um, you know, it's a small drop in the bucket or so to help um, educate our future news readers and citizens, actually. Right. Amy, I know that WERU has has kind of said, oh, um, our our population of listeners is aging. Some of our volunteers are aging. Not me, of course, but um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but but you've you've kind of um, as part of your strategic plan, you said, okay, how do we engage younger folks both in producing programs? Some of those are music programs. But how are you looking at um, the next generation of listeners and volunteers? Right. And, and we've done that. You know, we've had concentrated efforts many times off and on through the years and had success bringing in younger people. But there's, you know, something about being that age. I'm uh, I, I think it was Kate who said she's an eighth generation Mainer. I'm like a fifth or sixth generation Mainer, too. And <clears throat> like a lot of Mainers, when they graduate high school or if they go to college or college, young people have a lot of things going on, a lot of options. They're leaving the state, but hopefully they come back. So we've trained some people who've stuck around for a while and then gone on to do whatever they are going to do in their 20s. And ideally, some of them come back. But what we're doing now is more of a focused effort through a few different means, uh, competing with social media and cell phones. It's not like when I first got into this and we were just desperate for some place that we could get news out about the fact that there had just been a protest in New York with a million people and the major news outlets ignored it. You know, this is like 2002, 2003. Now everyone can broadcast from everywhere. So convincing anyone that there's a, or well, there is a benefit, but convincing them that the benefit of being doing that reporting within a uh, parameter of it being journalism and within broadcast media is the piece that is a little bit of a struggle. It's not as hard to get your voice out there anymore, but we've had good luck with it. And and if anybody's listening, we're working with people who uh, were particularly trying to increase the number of people under 40 who are involved in the station right now, just to balance out and have uh, more representation, not just on air, but behind the scenes and in positions of leadership. Uh, Not a lot of people in that age range even have radios, but we have a smartphone app and we we do live streaming and all of that. So those things are more accessible. And I recently did a program. uh, I'm working on a series this year called Maine the Way Life Could Be. And our last show, we talked to four high school students and then Hazel Stark, who does a short feature on the station and uh, is kind of a station legacy. (laughs) Her parents are also on the station um, about and she works. She runs an outdoor school, works with younger people about climate change and the things that they had to say, you know, there was a real message there that they really need people to hear. And so the more we can let people of that age know that there's a value to being on this kind of format and that it's accessible and that we'll train them. And if they're starting a podcast, we can get it out to more listeners. Uh will be moving better or moving quickly, I think, in the right direction. We've already got sort of a head start on that, but I think it's going to just sort of snowball. The more they hear people their age on the station, the more people will get involved and so forth. Great. 
Great. Well, I just want to remind listeners, they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about Maine's media landscape and what it means for democracy and community discourse. Um, in the studio with us, you've just heard from Amy Brown, who's the News and Public Affairs Manager at WERU, the station that's broadcasting the show. Also, Michael Sokolow is with us. Um, he's a journalism professor at the University of Maine. Faith Ambrose is the managing editor of the Mount Desert Islander. And Kate Koff is a reporter from the Maine Monitor. Um, Michael, uh, back to you. You, you, you kind of, I think of the Ukraine war, the Russian attack, and the role of kind of citizen journalists uh, and, and regular journalists um, covering that. Um, that's something we need to know as, as, a, as, a, as a country. Do you see any, any uh, shifts or changes because of, of this, what Amy mentioned, this everybody can get involved and, and tell a story with their, with their smartphone? Uh, absolutely. But uh, as, as somebody who both teaches journalism and loves journalism and practices journalism, I have kind of a different concern that Amy alluded to um, and, and Kate even sort of mentioned, which is the erasure of reporting and journalistic labor. OK, so for instance, when you ask when you ask your students, oh, where did you get this information about Ukraine? The answer is never ABC News, you know, who's paying for the person to go and report there. It's never CNN. It's, I'm talking about younger people now. Older people see it on CNN TV, but the younger people say Reddit. I saw it on Reddit. I saw it on. Um, I saw it on Instagram. I saw it on Facebook. As though Facebook paid for and delivered this journalism, but they didn't. And this is what really concerns me. It's 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 even a level of abstraction a little bit higher than than the media literacy than being critical about what you're looking at. It's knowing who made what you're looking at. It's it's obscured and it's. It's really not a it's 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 worrisome. Let me put it that way. So if I could if I could wave a magic wand, that's what I would do is I would get the social media companies to be forced to credit the reporters. I mean, it's really they should pay, but at least credit and make known. I mean, Kate can speak to this better than I can, because I had friends who saw her piece from Newry and a, a fascinating aspect about the lithium article that she wrote is that Maine is one of the very few states that has an anti mining law. And so people would read this and say, what, <laughs> you know, this is crazy. But I have no idea, since it went viral, I have no idea how many people associated it with Kate or the main monitor. Kate? Yeah, well, like, as I mentioned, the monitor does, we do distribute our content. So we are in a little bit of an odd position where it's true, you know, somebody will say to me, oh, I, I read your work in the Bangor Daily News and, and you know, do you work for them? And I said, no, I, well, you know, I actually have to explain who I work for. But um, Michael's absolutely right. I, I It was fascinating. I mean, I saw a version of my article on Reddit and I also watched as the information in it got um really distorted uh, as it sort of traveled through the internet. And it was sad and fascinating to watch. I got a number of emails and I actually sent a number of emails saying, hey, you know, this is incorrect. Um, and I, you know, and frankly, I'm, I'm not sure how, to, how a lot of it happened because I, you know, some of these were news organizations that took this and it was clear that they had read my work and they were actually taking large chunks of it, which, you know, we we don't love, but we allow them to do in a fashion. But so they, they were taking large chunks of it, um, but they were changing things and getting them wrong. And it was really uh, bizarre to watch. And I, um, so he, he's absolutely right that it, there is this, this abstraction that happens. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily important for me personally to have them know that I wrote it, but it, it is important for uh, the monitor in the sense that 
people need to know that it, it takes resources to do this. It takes money. I mean, I, I need to be paid, you know? <laughs> um, and so if we are not, if that is not attributable to us, then uh, people don't know that, that they should support us. And so that's important, I think. Um, and I, you know, I also, one of the things that really concerns me is that I think uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out some data in 2019 that showed that PR specialists now outnumber journalists five to one. Um, and that was just stunning to me. Um, although now that I know that statistic, I see it all the time in my daily life. And what that's meant is that there's just these increasingly well-crafted messages coming out of organizations and of all sizes and sort of a you know, I, I have decent access to the government here. I think they do a pretty good job, but um, that those messages are being just increasingly well-crafted and there are fewer and fewer journalists who have the time and the resources to really dig into them. And so what happens is you see a reprinting of a press release as though it is an article with nothing else around it. And so you, you really have just one one side of the message out there and it's not clear to readers, to listeners, uh, that that is what is going on. So that's really concerning to me. Uh, Michael, your point that um, we're seeing a shrinking number of, of journalism uh, journalists who are, who are paid um, as professionals. Um, is there any way to reverse that? Or is that part of the economy that um, we're going down that spiral that that uh, organizations just aren't hiring as many journalism, journalists and, and therefore they're not they're not uh, seen as as the where we get our news, where we get our information. Well, the, the technology facilitates the idea that everybody can be a journalist. But, you know, Faith Ambrose was the president of the Maine Press Association, and she will tell you that, that there's more to journalism than aiming a, a, a camera. Right. Faith? The, um, she and I just had a, a conversation about this because I teach a senior seminar and kids who are ready to go out into the world of journalism. And Maine has an incredible track record for training excellent journalists. If you look at the people who work at the Ellsworth American in the 1960s and 70s and what they went on to in terms of national journalism, it's incredible. Hmm. And yet um, and yet, right now, that kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, the kind of training and hard work of the small newspaper job as a, as a step up and a way to go is getting more difficult because, you know, A, it's hard work. B, the pay is is it's not commensurate with these strategic communication jobs. So um, it's a really difficult question. Hmm. Faith, do you want to um, weigh in on 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 that? I, mean, I think you're you're looking for journalists now. You're trying to recruit journalists to to work for you. Um, is that is that tough in today's um, climate? It has been tough. Um, it has been tough. I am definitely. Seeing a lot of applicants who think journalism is just about writing. I want to write. I want to write feature stories and all of that kind of stuff. And that is some of what we do, but it is not the most important bit of what we do. Um, it's really hard to find people who um, are passionate about democracy for, you know, digging for the truth and all of those sort of watchdog uh, journalism things that really engage the reader that they can't find anywhere else. Um, and, you know, it's, it's made it, it's made it difficult. Um, we're also having, you know, some other issues around here in Maine and especially on the coast um, where it's very expensive to live here. Um, and it's very hard to pay people enough to 
live here in a, in a way that is, um, you know, that, that they would like. So there's all these um, issues also tied into um, uh, attracting journalists, but the biggest thing really is the, um, you know, not being prepared, not having the skill set necessary to um, do the work that makes community um, journalism so meaningful. Mm. So as we think about um, what you would like to say um, to listeners of this radio program or consumers of your media, uh, how do you help people sort out um, what's true and accurate from the, the stuff that isn't <laughs> true and accurate, that may have been crafted by someone with a particular point of view, so it looks like news or accurate information, but may not be? How do you help people uh, navigate uh, um, in this world. Um, I think that's the point of, of uh, media literacy. Um, Kate, would you like to start and we'll then hear from others? Sure. Uh, it, it does get a bit, bit tricky when you're trying to, you know, sort of do due diligence on a certain news organization. Um, but you can, uh, you know, just look, I mean, look to see what they have on their website, look to see what kind of disclosures they have. Um, but in terms of in terms of just a, a story, you know, if you're looking at a story, I have an acronym I like, uh, it's VIA, V-I-A, Verification, Independence and Accuracy. Um, so if you're reading a story, you should, uh, and you know, I, I'm talking about uh, print media because that's, that's my realm, but sure. um, this can be applied elsewhere. Uh, if you're reading a story, you know, look for words like according to and interviews with, you know, they, they should be showing you how they know what they know. Um, independence. So that has to do with the news organization itself. Um, you know, it, when you're looking at nonprofits, do they have an ethics policy? Do they have a conflict of interest policy? Is it clear what's advertising and what's news? Is it clear what's opinion and what's news? Those things should be really evident. Um, you shouldn't have to search for them. And then accountability, uh, does the, or, this doesn't always mean getting things right, but it means taking responsibility for your reporting. So that means clarifying and correcting your mistakes, um, you know, having a procedure for readers to report errors and putting in place policies to make sure that doesn't happen in the future. Um, so those are, those are a couple of things, you know, readers and listeners can keep in mind. Um, and then, one thing I, I always like for people to remember is remember that there is no vetting process to a, obtain a web address. So if you see a .org, it's not automatically trustworthy. I think people, uh, you know, we sort of feel like, oh, it must be trustworthy, you know. Um, uh, it's not necessarily trustworthy. There are studies showing people tend to have a higher level of trust in those .org web addresses. Um, anyone can get one, and the information behind it is not necessarily trustworthy. So just something, a couple of things to keep in mind. Mm. It seems like um, uh, being a reader, like being a citizen, is a much more robust process. It's, it should not be a passive process, is what I hear you saying, that we, we need to, mm -hmm. to consider where things come from. Um, uh, Faith, how do, you, how do you help listeners, I mean, readers to your newspaper, kind of understand the, the principles of, of, uh, that Kate has print, uh, shared with us, the VIA? Uh, yeah, I mean, we have clear policies, <laughs> for sure. We are always, um, you know, I will take phone calls all the time from readers, um, and I make lots of decisions during the week about what we cover, and I stand behind all of them, and I'm happy to take any calls from anyone in the community to talk about them. Um, but I believe that a lot of this starts before people even pick up a newspaper. And 
you know, not to continue to talk about media education or media literacy, but it is the first step. And we need to teach people how to interact with media, how to evaluate the messages that come from it, how to navigate the landscape around them. And that's one of the reasons that I was happy to sort of collaborate with Kate on this, because I really do believe that there's not enough of that and anything that I can do to get out in front of people to hopefully um, get them interested in learning more about it or implementing it into their classrooms or into their existing you know, curriculum, all of that, um, any of that is, is a win for the readers and for democracy and will help them to be able to evaluate the messages and the media that they're, they're getting. Like Kate said, if you go to a website and you go to contact us and you don't see any information and there's not an actual person um, that you can talk to, then it's probably not the most reputable site because like any newspaper editor in this state, um, you know, we are happy to have a phone call with anyone who wants to call and, you know, criticize us about anything that we do. Because again, we think through the decisions that we make, um, the stories that we run, the placement that we give them, all, all of that stuff. Those are all decisions that, um, you know, we're making and stand behind. Right. Michael, what would you add to this notion of a, of a, the responsibilities of a citizen and as a consumer of, of media? Well, well uh, Kate and Faith both talked about the media system and the education system, and I would actually expand the scope of it further. I would say this is a universal issue. This is about, you know, this is a crowdsourced problem. Everybody is contributing to it, not just school kids, not just, um, you know, people who have their favorite thing. It, it, it's being fostered and encouraged by the social media companies. So if it's a crowdsourced problem, the only solution is going to be a crowdsourced solution. And I, I, I did a piece for the uh, New York Times a couple of years ago, and my little slogan is no link, not news, right? So in other words, the biggest single problem with social media engagement, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, elsewhere, is, is they use these emotional responses. And to get the most emotional response, people just blast or retweet something that has no basis. And they, or, or they don't read the article or they don't do this or that. And so if there's not a link to something you're seeing on Facebook, to something you're seeing on Twitter, to something you're seeing on Instagram, if there's no link where you can go to, to see who wrote it and what it's about, it's not news. It's not journalism. Don't consider it that. And, and the conversation sort of ends there. Know what it is. And, um, and so that's, that's where I would put it. If we all knew that, think of how much less engagement there would be of people spouting off on Twitter, retweeting other people who are yelling, mm. which I think is the biggest single problem, is this emotional engagement of the social media companies. Yeah. So um, you said you start out by saying that journalists um, are, are called out in the Constitution. Social media um, companies are not. <laughs> how do we how do we manage this? Um, are there policies um, either at the state, federal level that we ought to be paying attention to um, as, as, as we go? I think it's it's us. It's on us. And I'll tell you why. Section 230, which protects the social media companies, which is so enormously important, is vital to democracy. And I'll give you an example. Uh, in Minneapolis, the George Floyd cell phone video without Section 230 would never have seen air, right? Because Facebook, Twitter, Instagram would actually be legally responsible for the violence. And so it's so I think it's I think um, it's on us. It's not on the companies. 
So as we begin to, to wrap up, um, what are your hopes for the future? Um, uh, briefly, um, Amy, um, what, what, what's your hope for the future in terms of this media landscape and, and the way we look at it and, and uh, play our role as citizens and as consumers? Amy? Okay, well, just two things really quickly. I want to echo what Michael was just saying. I think that people, when they're on social media, should think that when they hit that share button that they are the reporter and they should have done some background. The more crazy something is before you're like, oh, I'm going to be the first one to let all my friends know that this crazy thing happened. I'm going to hit share before I even read the article is irresponsible. So people need to start thinking of themselves as having that responsibility on social media. Um, and call your friends out if they're sharing stuff that's just junk. Great. Uh, the other thing is I'm hoping people who heard this, especially anybody who's interested in learning how to do news and public affairs who'd like to volunteer will get in touch with me at news at weru.org. Thanks. Uh, Faith D'Ambrose um, from the Islander. What, what are your hopes for the future briefly? Well, I'm hopeful about Maine journalism in general. I feel like we're well positioned um, for the future, and that gives me hope. Um, 99% of Maine news outlets are independently owned, and we have strong local news organizations and a reporter in nearly every community. Great. So, I've got to break you off because we're yep. running out of time. Uh, uh, Kate, briefly, what's your hope for the future? I'm very hopeful. Um, I would say if you are engaging with some kind of media daily or weekly, try and support it financially if you can. Um, and I think there's just an awareness of journalism that is is wonderful. So we're we're on the right track. Great. Michael, last word to you briefly, your hope for the future. My hope is that Maine continues to be singular in the United States as a real beacon of excellence in journalism. Great. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure to join us from four to five on the second Wednesday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. Please tune in for our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests um, here today, Kate Koff, reporter from the Maine Monitor, Faith D'Ambrose, managing editor of the Mount Desert Islander, Michael Sokolow, the media historian, associate professor of communication and journalism at the University of Maine, and Amy Brown, our own Amy Brown from uh, WERU. Thanks to those of you who listened. Thanks to our underwriters. Uh, Thanks to Amy and Joel, who will help with the uh, post-production work for our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.